He came to visit a home that I was renting in Karachi, and he went off for an interview and he never came back. In 2002, Wall Street Journal correspondent Azra Nomani was in Pakistan to investigate the Islamist ideology behind the 9-11 attacks in defiance of State Department warnings, when her colleague Daniel Pearl was kidnapped by ISIS terrorists and brutally beheaded. That was the moment that I knew we were in this war, you know, with this extremism, defined by the most illiberal of ideas, which is that there is a hierarchy of human value in the world. That's when I first confronted the idea of identity as a weapon. Since then, Namani has become an activist on many fronts, first as a Muslim reformer, and now as an ardent advocate of parental rights. They want a dumbing down of the United States of America, and that is why they came after my son's school. She's the author of Woke Army, the red-green alliance that is destroying America's freedom. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Asra Namani, so good to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Oh, thank you so much. It's my honor. It's so nice to have you in my home. <laughs> it's fantastic to be here, but it's a kind of a difficult time in American history. You know, and this is something you've been charting, we, we've discussed numerous times. You've always identified yourself as a classical liberal. And is this whole idea of classical liberalism here in America and perhaps beyond coming to an end? Well, I think it's there is a war for the values of classic liberalism. To me, what are they? They are simple ideas like individual freedom, free speech, the actual value of family, and something else really important to me, which is a sense of equality, a sense that there is no hierarchy of human value. And that, to me, is the greatest trage tragedy right now because we are in this existential threat for that kind of value system in which uh, we really do view each other for the human beings that we are. And unfortunately, I see the kind of sectarian, divisive ideologies that so many of us have fled to find homes in America. I see that now taking root in the United States. You know, it's very interesting because you've kind of approached this question from a number of different vantage points. I remember, you know, we were on a panel about religious freedom together. I think that's where we met. And then you were, you've been in the parental rights movement. How did you become this kind of fierce defender of classical liberalism or, um, I don't know, I guess we would call it a cognitive freedom, perhaps? Yeah, to me, it's about cognitive consistency. It's about living with ethical congruity. And how did that happen? It happened through really a childhood and young adulthood of living in the freedoms of America, but an incongruence with many of the messages that I was getting as a young Muslim girl. So I was born in India, and my family came here to the United States to enjoy so many of the freedoms that America has provided us because of values of classic liberalism, the opportunity of equal opportunity. You know, the idea that indeed the hierarchies of human value that have existed in so many nations around the world were ones that we were abandoning. Women's rights, equality, free speech, 
these were just joyful experiences that I had as a young girl growing up in the United States, but I was feeling an incongruence with some of the ideas that I was hearing and that were actually embedded inside of me being a Muslim because inside of the very traditional and fundamentalist interpretation of Islam, you're denied principles like free speech because you are ruled then by laws of blasphemy, you know, that can judge you and criminalize you. You are denied individual rights because you are now defined by the collective sense of what you're supposed to live and how you're supposed to marry, where you're supposed to travel, what you're supposed to do for a living. So through most of my life, I was living, trying to find peace. And it was actually in tragedy that I found the greatest clarity of my life. Tell me a little bit about that. It was a reality like I could never have imagined in my life. I had become a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. I had been able to rise to the highest levels of journalism in the United States of America. In the summer of 69, I had arrived as a girl who knew not a word of English. And then at the age of 23, I got a job at the Wall Street Journal. And how? It was because I had been affirmed and celebrated in the classrooms in which I had grown up. A lovely teacher named Mrs. Alkey in seventh grade had handed the, our, myself and all our classmates little green journals, and in it I would become a young writer. So that was the America in which I was able to prosper. And then all of a sudden on 9-11, I saw the this collision course between the most extreme interpretation of my faith of Islam and America. And I got on a plane like so many journalists did to Pakistan, defying all the State Department warnings. And a colleague of mine also headed to Pakistan, a journalist by the name of Danny, Danny Pearl. And so Danny was a great friend from the newsroom in Washington, D.C. We bonded over beach volleyball, and he introduced me to American music. I learned how to go to you know, open mic night with him in this neighborhood called Adams Morgan. And so Danny was just a great guy. And on January 23rd, 2002, he came to visit a home that I was renting in Karachi. And he went off for an interview, and he never came back. The men whom he was supposed to interview had set a trap Danny. It was actually a kidnapping scheme, and Danny was never to be seen again. He never came back. What we saw instead were these things that they call sign of life photographs, and the photographs had a gun to Danny's head. They had his hands in shackles. They had his humanity literally hostage, right? Everything that was the beauty and joy that I knew of Danny and then, Jan, you know what we got? We got the ransom notes. And first they said that Danny was a spy for the United States. They used his American citizenship and by proxy him being white to become, to demonize him as a spy for the U.S. Then a couple days later, the local press reported that Danny was Jewish. And that put a target on his back, and he went from being a spy for the CIA to a spy for the Mossad Israeli Intelligence Agency. And Danny was none of that. 
He was just a good guy who had learned to write using the pen for truth and justice in the world. And then in the weeks that followed, we learned that Danny had been slain, brutally beheaded. And that was the moment that I knew, you know, deep in my heart that we were in this war, you know, with this extremism. And what, what was that extremism defined by? It was defined by a sectarianism. And it was defined by the most illiberal of ideas, which is that there is a hierarchy of human value in the world. And that Danny, because of being American, by being white, by being Jewish, by being then of also Israeli ancestry, he was now at the bottom of that hierarchy of human value. And that's when I first confronted the fundamental idea of, of um, identity, you know, as a weapon to lay siege on not only the spirit and the soul, but the body, right? Because Danny's identity was used to justify his being taken from this earth. And so that, Jan, is when I really came to recognize that those classic liberal values that had allowed me to be the strong woman that I had become in the United States of America, those were values worth fighting for. And my first terrain was within my Muslim community. And then you became a Muslim reformer. And in the process of doing that, you faced a lot of personal attacks, which actually you've done some amazing investigative work, kind of figuring out what actually happened to you as a Muslim reformer in that you chronicle in Mulkarmi. And I, do, I want to touch, in, touch on that as well. But I want to kind of jump into first your uh, kind of work here in Fairfax County, where we are now, and nearby Loudoun County, um, where you became this parental rights advocate, because it very much centers around this idea of identity that you had pointed out right. moments ago. It's kind of the, the, the uniting issue. Right. So out of Pakistan, my niece likes to say I brought back a souvenir, and that was a little baby. I was found out in the days that we were trying to find Danny that I was pregnant with a boyfriend, that it didn't work out. But my parents uh, embraced this new chapter in my life, welcomed me back to my hometown in West Virginia. And I brought this little baby into the world, chose America, of course, to raise him, and brought him here to Virginia to, to go to the great public schools of Virginia, where I believed, you know, that I could raise him with that same classic liberal values with which I had been raised and with which America had embraced me. So he was a successful little boy. I became his um, Lego robotics coach, you know, and helped coach boys volleyball. It was, you know, here in this house that I worked with him on algebra and, and um, we just had our little life. and. Then we had the great success of my son being accepted into this school called Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology. So like its name sounds, it's for kids that are really smart in math and science. Entry is based on a merit admission back then. So my son worked hard, so did all the other kids. And in the 
fall of 2017, he walked through the doors of the school. I became the PTA mom. And what I learned was some of the most diverse community in any school in the country was within those walls. We had sugarcane juice at the parent-teacher meetings. We had biryani from India because um, the school body, student body is 70% Asian, 10% black, Hispanic, and other identities, and then 20% white. And of the white students, many of them are from Eastern European countries, immigrants who have fled communism. Many of the Asian students are from India and from China. Many families that had fled communism in China to create, just like my family, a new reality in the United States. So here we are living, you know, a nice, regular life. And then the killing of George Floyd happens in the spring of 2020. All of a sudden, there was a new race war launched. And guess what? It was our kids at TJ that were in the crosshairs. And on my birthday, June 7th, 2020, the principal of the school, this woman by the name of Ann Bonitatibus, sent all of our families an email. I thought it was like my little birthday email, you know? Got it that night, but it was a scolding in which she said that our families with such diverse backgrounds, with such stories of struggle coming to the United States, she said that we needed to check our privileges. And she said that we needed to change the racial demographic of the school so that it would match the racial demographic of the county. And what is that racial demographic of the county? 20% is Asian, whereas 70% of the school is Asian. So we were the wrong kind of minority now. The many years, it was 18 years then that I had been seeing this reality of identity politics inside my Muslim community, a new identity politics emerging in the United States. And now, all of a sudden, I was in the crosshairs of it, and so was my son and all these amazing families. And that summer, I recognized really fast that the same type of identity politics that had laid its target on my friend, Danny Pearl, had shifted to a new group in the United States, Asian families, immigrant families, anybody who refused the narrative of this network that I call the woke army, and, um, and a new fight began. So you found yourself in the crosshairs. On the other hand, you jumped in yeah. and started working on it. And honestly, Jan, I didn't even know the extent of it. You know, it's like everything where you just jump into the deep end and you don't even know where the waters will take you. And I didn't realize the abyss that it is. Um, you can use so many metaphors. It's like jumping into quicksand because it will suck you up. You know, it's like going into these dark waters of just um, poison and toxicity that will try to spit you out just so so hurt and so damaged, but the the lesson that I had learned from my years earlier fighting for Muslim reform was that you just have to stick to your core values. You know, you have to be unapologetic 
in what they are. And that requires a lot of meditation and reflection so that you are always guided by those values, you know, and not any kind of negative uh, objectives because those that oppose you will try so hard for you to abandon your values, you know, so that you will become like them. And, and, and that's a constant, constant mental check every day. There is this kind of, you know, alliance of people with illiberal values, right? So tell me, what is this woke army and what are, and how, it, it, it seems like it doesn't actually make a ton of sense on the face of it that there would be such an alliance. Yeah, so when you think about it, it seems contradictory and that is partly why this alliance is unholy in that they really contradict each other's values. But what this unholy alliance is that I confronted is the Islamists, which describe those people in Islam who believe in political Islam, Muslims who want theocracy, people who believe in religious law as the law of the state. And that's a very, very dangerous prescription for secular democracies that we have. And it's also a destructive order for any nation. So because you think of Iran, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and how regressive their interpretations of Islam become just inhumane forms of denying people civil rights and human rights. So they're the Islamists who have aligned now with the leftists in the United States and around the world. They manifest in so many different forms as socialists, as even Antifa sometimes, as communists. But what they do is work together for the undermining of classic liberal values and the freedoms that we know in places like the United States. I was fascinated to learn as we were preparing for this interview that perhaps this whole um, alliance was kind of catalyzed to some extent through the Trump candidacy and then the Trump presidency. And this is, you saw this develop. So, so explain this to me. Yeah, so, you know, in the early days of the Muslim reform movement, where we're challenging the Islamists in the way that they're interpreting the religion in mosques, in the political states in the world like Saudi Arabia and Qatar. You're gonna just swoon at the idea of this, but I was a glamour hero of the month. That was what our liberal community embraced. You know, were values of women's rights challenging tyranny. Really fundamental idea that you'd think would be consistent all throughout the ages in the United States. But something really frightening happened. What I noticed through the start of the Obama administration was the Islamists were now aligning with the Democratic Party, you know, and they were entering into this unholy alliance of values because they actually do not believe in ideas like my body, my choice. You know, they do not actually believe in equal rights or the kind of LGBTQ rights that the Democratic Party was embracing. And so I saw that build up. I saw money start flowing into the Muslim organizations from typical, traditional, liberal philanthropists. And I wondered how they could justify it. 
what I realized they were using was race. So what the Islamists had started to do was take this really complicated legal theory of critical race theory and declare that Muslims were a race and you were being racist if you dared to criticize extremism within the faith. So what they developed for themselves in the war of ideas was a shield. And that kept developing through the Obama administrations, the first one and then the second one. And then when the 2016 election was happening, that alliance tried first to defeat Donald Trump as president. Then when he won, the night of the election, I saw the battle cry go out from the Islamist organizations for literally an overthrow of the government. They were chanting the same chant that they had been chanting in Tahir Square in Egypt to overthrow the Mubarak regime and bring in the Muslim Brotherhood. And concurrently, of course, most people know that the democratic groups and the far left in the United States was rallying against Donald Trump. And an activist named Linda Sarsour in Brooklyn put out the battle cry from the East Coast, rallied people to the streets of New York to join the resistance. You know, that's when the resistance was coined. And mind you, Donald Trump isn't even in office, right? He's simply been elected. But now the woke army has galvanized to go into the streets. And we all know then what happened in the weeks and months that followed. Linda Sarsour became a leader of this new movement called the Women's March. And it wasn't just a march for women. It was a march for women opposed to Donald Trump. And who were they starting to exclude? They wanted to also exclude Jewish feminist women from Israel. Because in this woke army's new order, there was a hierarchy of human value. And in their universe of intersectionality, the new term that they were introducing to the political landscape, Israeli feminists were at the bottom because for women like Linda Sarsour from the Muslim establishment, they were the colonizers. They were the white supremacists. And Jan, it was just so obvious to me that this a new network was going to work now to not only undermine Donald Trump, but the freedoms that we know in the United States because they, they were now aligned with people who, with very illiberal ideas, you know, with a, with a vision for the world that is not one of equality and human rights. And so that's when I really became aware of the threat that we were facing as a nation. What is the vision of the woke army? The common vision, as I can now see it unfolding, not only you know on the political landscape, but in our K through 12 schools, is multifold. There is this real hope to bring the sectarianism that divides a nation to our country, and we can see it happening 
everywhere now. We see it from the workplace to K through 12 schools. We see segregation and separation of people based on identity. It's so disheartening for me to see as a young girl who grew up in the uh, United States in which we had defeated those, uh, those ideas. They want a dumbing down of the United States of America and that is why they came after my son's school. And what they were doing at my son's school was coming against the idea of merit and merit education and merit entrance and meritocracy. And we have seen that whittling away through our K through 12 system with the absence now of advanced placement classes and honors classes. You know, there's a new concept called equitable grading, which is getting rid of D's and F's because it makes kids feel bad. There's concepts like equal outcomes for every child. And so they are bringing into their universe a dumping down of the United States. And then finally, the, the thing that I, I want to really um, emphasize is with my friend Danny, they slayed him. They took him from this earth in body. What we have to take seriously is the slaying of people's spirits, you know, and really demoralizing human beings to the point, yeah, to the point that there is almost like a spiritual death. Um, and, and I don't say that lightly at all. So many people feel helpless and hopeless against this woke army. They are living in fear of being canceled because of what they say. They work in jobs for which they have worked to accomplish and, and get their entire lifetimes. And now they live in uh, almost intellectual prisons, you know, and spiritual uh, prisons because they're not self-expressed, you know. And, and I know what it can mean to the soul to live in shame because in those months after my friend Danny's murder, as I lived with this reality, you know, of, of murder um, and the prospect of bringing my son into the world as a single mother, I knew shame, you know, and I know how much of a, a dark shadow it can cast on our lives. It can plunge a person into depression and anxiety. And, and these are crises that we're facing in the United States. And so it is its own war, you know, on the spirit of America and Americans. And I don't want to see that happen to a single child, you know, let alone human being. No, I just want to clarify one thing. So you were you, you were saying they before. So initially, when you're talking about the people that killed Danny, um, you're talking about Islamists, terrorists, and then you you continue to say they. Well, and then you're talking about the woke army in general, right? But it it's a kind of a leap, right, to go from one to the other. And I, th I think for a lot of people, to say you know, Azra, you're conflating two very different things here. These you know people. You know, maybe they're misguided, but they're going for social justice. And on the other hand, you have, you know, violent extremists who are, you know, decapitate people. I think that a lot of people have seen the ways that totalitarian regimes and tyrannies ultimately do lay claim to people's lives. We have the testimony of the parents from China who have fled the Cultural Revolution as children and 
it started as ideas, you know, and then children had to turn their parents in. Parents were uh, also ca cast then as the enemy of the state. Lives were lost. We can see on our streets of our cities that people think that they can also lay siege on other human beings, in part sometimes because of their own identities. And, and, and that kind of racial injustice was one that I thought that we had rejected as a society. You know, I thought that we were all, you know, connected in the idea that nobody could be targeted because of their identity. But now we see, you know, targeted assaults on Asian families, on immigrants, not by the far right how it's so often cast, but unfortunately by activists in the woke army. And I'm so impassioned about it because I do know that violence happens only after you have embedded really divisive ideas in a society that pit people against each other. So you have a chapter in your book that talks about character assassination, and this is something that you yourself experienced. I mean, you describe, you went on as this journey through, with the help of a lawsuit, to try to, you know, figure out who was behind this. So I, I want to, but there's, so there's two things. I want to kind of explore that a little bit. I had been a young student of the art of propaganda as a master's student at American University, and I'd actually studied it from a professor uh, who had come to the United States from Iran who had witnessed the Iranian Revolution. And it was a propaganda that brought the Ayatollah Khomeini to power and brought this Islamist interpretation of Islam to power. So I, I knew how propaganda can be used in the war of ideas and then also be weaponized to slay enemies of the ideas that the um, character assassins are tr promoting in the world. The first witness that I had was of my friend Danny Pearl. Before Danny's killers slayed him, they first waged a character assassination campaign on him first as an American, then as a Jew, and then as a son of Israel. That was used to discredit him as a human being. You know, that was used to dehumanize Danny. When I came back to the United States, I started challenging the interpretation of Islam that was used to dehumanize Danny. And so what did my enemies do? They started their campaign to dehumanize me and they assigned all sorts of ulterior motives to my campaign. They turned Zionist into a slur and used that to try to discredit me. And what I knew was that character assassination has been used since the beginning of time against any political enemy to try to eliminate them. But the internet had allowed these assassins to be anonymous, just like you said. So they wore masks, and I didn't know who they were. Well, in the summer of 2017, I learned that there had been an article published about me on an anonymous website called loonwatch.com. It had been created literally on April Fool's Day 2009 to 
to smoke out the so-called loons who were, they called Islamophobic. And who was in that category? None other than me. I, as a Muslim feminist, was declared Islamophobic because I dared to challenge the sexism within my faith and the intolerance. Well, now their new allegation was that Muslim reformers are funded by the government of Israel. So that was enough for them to try to just eliminate us as credible voices in our community. In the larger narrative in the United States, I was going from glamour hero to zero. And I wondered, okay, what is this? Who are they? And I learned that in the U.S., you can do something called file a John Doe complaint. And it's a complaint of defamation that I was alleging against these anonymous character assassins. And the defamation, to be clear, is that you're funded by Israel. Right? Yeah. It's just a falsehood, yeah. as I understand it. Yeah, exactly. And I'm an open book. I was ready to have them go through my bank accounts. You know, I feared nothing in terms of disclosure. So there I was. And here at my dining table, the same one where I taught my son math and reading and writing, I filed subpoena after subpoena against the platforms that are called internet service providers that gave these people voice. And who are they? Folks like Facebook, Twitter, you know, places where they had their anonymous identities. And there was one platform that a lot of people might have heard of called GoDaddy, where you can register a website. Well, they had registered loonwatch.com at GoDaddy. So I sent off my little subpoena. The anonymous accounts have a certain number of days where they can fight your subpoena. Well, they didn't fight it. And one day, Jan, I got a thumb drive. And in that thumb drive was all of the back-end documentation for the people who held that account at LoonWatch. It was every phone call that they made to the customer service office. It was every complaint that they filed. And I w went through the hundreds of pages. In the US, you gotta pay with a credit card when you sign on to these subscriptions. And there I found that this character assassination campaign had been led, funded, and run by an organization called the Council on American-Islamic Relations, an organization that touts itself as a civil rights organization for Muslims. But what they had been doing for years and what they continue to do, because Loon Watch continues to stay alive as a website, is run this domestic disinformation and character assassination campaign against not only Muslim reformers, but also ex-Muslims, conservatives, the Republican Party, nations like Israel and now India, anybody who dares to challenge their Islamist interpretation of my faith. We reached out to the Council on American-Islamic Relations, CARE, but did not immediately receive a response. It was a really liberating day. You might wonder, why, would, why should I bother? Why did I spend this time? Character assassination is a weapon of war. And it was really important for me to understand who the combatants were in this situation and what it led me to 
was half of the woke army, you know, because care had embedded itself now in the Democratic Party and in the far left and progressive organizations of the United States, and they were now laying siege on America. So what I did is I put them in my book and I documented them because I want people to read the book and see the blueprint for how the woke army works in the United States. I want to save readers the suffering that I've experienced in order to learn these lessons. And I, and I want folks to also understand that this tactic of character assassination is so often used to make you lose your own confidence about your value system, to make you wonder and doubt yourself. Mm. Like, Because trust me, when they did this to me, there were many, many moments when I felt so just defeated. I put my pen aside. I was paralyzed. I couldn't write. There was one time when I remember I lay in fetal position, you know, on my bed. And it was my mother, my mother, who is now 83, who stood at the frame of the door and said to me, you know, Asra, you don't live in a village. You live in the United States of America. Like, you do not have to live with shame. And I wiped away my tears and, you know, acted even in the face of my fear because that's what I've heard courage is. It doesn't mean that we don't feel fear. It doesn't mean that we aren't scared, but we still act. And and, and that's what I wanted people to really um, witness because it's those tactics of character assassination that are now you being used against parents. You know, I went from being called a Zionist as a slur to now being a white supremacist. I'll, I'll jump in with one more, Islamophobe. So you've, you, you've certainly been called yes. an Islamophobe. You've been called many things, but, but, yeah. but this one, how do, how do you respond when, when people say this? Well, I thought about it, I researched it, I looked at how the word had evolved over time, and then I saw it was just another weapon of war, you know, for these Islamist nations. It was a term that had been created in the 1990s as some Muslim groups were looking at the dynamic of racism inside the UK. Well, in 2005, after the 9-11 attacks, governments like Qatar and the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia were facing real economic consequences of the fact that extremists from within Islam had created tension for Muslims and uh, inside the West, they had to find a defense. This organization called the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, it's like a mini UN for all the Muslim majority countries in the world, they decided that they were going to run a 10-year campaign waging a war on Islamophobia. And so they are the ones who weaponized it in order to then shield themselves, really, from the criticism for the way that they run their countries. And what does that meant? When the Islamic State was emerging, President Obama went before the microphone and said there was no Islamic in Islamic State. ISIL is not Islamic because he had been duped by these Islamist countries and organizations into thinking that it would be racist to call out the Islamic State. Okay, so fast forward to today, we now have 
an international day for fighting Islamophobia by the United Nations. We ju it just was celebrated um, because they've institutionalized it as a way to keep any kind of criticism from their nation states. Qatar sponsored the World Cup, and so they have had such shoddy record of labor rights. Well, it was Islamophobic, you know, to talk about those laborers that had been killed in the building of the stadiums. It was something that I learned in the early days of the parent movement in fighting against any of the smears about us as racist. And that was that, you know, we have to be unapologetic in our values. That, to me, became the most important uh, strategy against those accusations and that character assassination. Like, you have to lay your head to rest at night, every night on your bed, and live with yourself. The values that you have and the values that you practice every day, if you know in your heart that you are motivated by a sense of these classic liberal values that, you know, align with conservative values of equality and justice and individual rights, then you can withstand all of those smears because they're just used as weapons. And soft power can be more damaging and can uh, weaken a nation and a people even more than bullets or, or bombs. Well, indeed. And, you know, we just had an episode recently about the Chinese Communist Party's United Front Work Department, which is all about wielding soft power and it's had you know incredible impacts on on the west and the u.s and canada and so forth but i, I want to touch on something you know i'm kind of as i'm listening to you i kind of don't blame this kind of umbrella group for the different um, uh, muslim organizations for wanting to protect themselves say in the wake of 9 11 because i mean i observed it myself in fact i was quite concerned about it that people that look middle eastern that people look like they might be Muslim, right, would be targeted in some way for suspicion and so forth in a North America reeling from 9-11, yeah. right? In fact, I was kind of, I was motivated to try to help people who might find themselves in that situation back then. So I guess my, my, my point is, I guess, that Islamophobia feels like a real word, word right? Yeah, like I think the term that should have been used and, and we should use to address the reality of hate that does exist in the world is, in this case, just call it anti-Muslim hate. Like if somebody is hating on another human being because they are Muslim or look like they're Muslim, then it's anti-Muslim hate. Just like if you were uh, racist against somebody for any identity that they may have. But what, what they were able to do in a very clever way was not only uh, you know, protect this very justifiable point that you're making anybody against hate, but they were able to also then create a shield for a very intolerant and illiberal ideology that they embraced. And, and that's the problem that I have with it because my solution is just a really simple one that would have, I believe, had a dual purpose of protecting Muslims from any kind of hate, but also uh, eliminating the extremism that we absolutely have within the religion. And that is just if they had just, as establishment organizations, owned up to the extremism from a place of challenging it then and rejecting it and refusing it, I think we would have 
stood up for Muslims, which is what I tried to do all the time because I remain a Muslim and fight for that interpretation of Islam that my parents raised me with. But the problem is that many of these organizations have been propped up by those nations that have promoted this Islamist interpretation. And if we were to challenge the interpretation of Islam that believes in a theocracy, what would that mean? That would mean undermining the entire system of those nations. Mm. It's a self-preservation. Of course, a nation, like even China, they're coming up with a strategy to defend themselves and their system, right? Well, everybody can understand why they would do that because they're not, they don't want to self-destruct, right? But that doesn't mean we buy into it. And we definitely don't enable it and we don't participate in it. And I'm so glad that you brought up that nuance because I don't think that it has to be, you know, either or. Like we can fight that extremism and we can stand up for Muslims against hate. A significant contingent of the woke army is deeply opposed to parental rights, yeah. right? They believe that some other entity should have the rights over the children. On the other hand, my, from everything I know, and I'm not an expert on the issue of people who have you know, very fundamentalist interpretations of Islam or extreme versions of Islam, they probably wouldn't be very happy with that. So, yeah. so, this, so the woke army, it isn't sort of, I mean, isn't entirely uniform here, is it? Yeah, and it, it's in a collision course with itself, absolutely. Like, I definitely think that the opportunity exists now in this parents issue to, uh, to you know, isolate parts of this woke army from itself. I see it happening in uh, school districts, like in Detroit and in Minnesota, where we have large Muslim communities that exactly, like you said, they want to raise their kids, you know, like most parents want to do. They don't want their child at the age of 10 to be able to keep secrets from them about their gender pronoun or which bathroom they want to enter, which the far left in the woke army are is pushing in the United States right now. And so they are also having this reflection, you know, about the, this unholy alliance in which they have now created a... Uh, establishment really so I think that um, we have to be careful those families that come out of the Islamist movement well they are not completely aligned also with liberal values you know classic liberal values so you don't want to compromise your own classic liberal values of for example you know equal rights you know and human rights and individual rights no matter what position you may have on issues of morality, I think we all agree that like by the time a person is an adult, you know, they're allowed to make their personal decisions about marriage, you know, about how they're gonna live their lives, following the laws of the, of the land. Um, and, and oftentimes that comes in clash, you know. Uh, I'll never forget how I jetted to Doha, Qatar one time to debate somebody from the Islamist wing of the woke army who uh, was arguing that Muslim women are not allowed to marry anyone that they choose. You know, and I gave a valiant defense of the right of a Muslim woman to marry anyone that she wants to marry. And I won, my side won, because the young women there in the audience voted. 
and they wanted those same classic liberal values, you know, that we love and most people would like to practice in the world if they were allowed. But another thing I wanted to touch on a bit is, you know, you're this obviously, you know, big advocate for free speech, right? And at the same time, criticizing the interpretation of Section 230, for example, right? Or, or how it's used. You feel like these um, platforms should be held accountable for the speech they allow. And, you know, this is a big issue right now. Like we've seen what I would argue and many have argued is huge overreach on the side of the platforms and government and so forth in this area. So given everything we've seen, uh, you know, with the Twitter files and the work that's been done there, Missouri versus Biden exposures, you're, I know you're probably familiar with that case. Um, you know, where do you stand now on the free speech uh, platform censorship issue? Yeah, like I am 100% for free speech, but I also recognize that there's rights and responsibilities that come with free speech. So having been a journalist all my life, I learned very early on, for example, that journalists cannot engage in libel, you know, and truth is the only and best defense for libel. So who is held responsible for a journalist's work? The publishing company. And what Section 230 has done is shielded publishing platforms, in my eyes, from any kind of responsibility for the material and content that's published on their platforms. When it comes to defamation or untruths, you know, uh, they have no responsibility and publishing houses go through great lengths to make sure that they aren't violating libel laws, for example or you know, even FCC laws and regulations. Those are really serious and they, they cost a lot for a company to make sure that they have those, um, those sort of guardrails in society. What I have seen firsthand is that people have now weaponized big tech you know, to launch these character assassinations on people and, uh, and I, I don't think that they should be allowed to just have a wild, wild west, um, you know, terrain on which to do it. There, somebody has to be held responsible. It, it absolutely has to be the individuals. And that's why if people do it anonymously, like we have to allow the means, like I've gone down to unmask folks and hold them personally responsible. But also the platforms should be held responsible for violations that we've established in law, you know, of limits on free speech like defamation or inciting people to violence. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the platforms have decided that they're going to act not only as moderators and platforms, but publishing houses censoring many conservative voices. You know, they've, they've taken their own liberties to deny people their free speech rights, but they, they take no responsibilities. And that's what I really believe uh, the tech giants have to be uh, forced to do, because if, if we don't do it, then these platforms will continue to be used, you know, indiscriminately for the soft power objectives of foreign governments 
for domestic disinformation and domestic character assassination in ways that our courts and our laws not protect the people and really the United States of America. The tyrants that are out there in the world that want to destabilize America and will use all the freedoms that we allow them to use against us. And they have uh, now willing participants in the U.S., you know, who will do their dirty work for them. And, and I just think it's really important to uh, stand up for those free speech rights that we've got and yet not allow them to be weaponized against us. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with the idea that disinformation, propaganda are a real thing? They can be done at scale, as we've seen. They can be done by foreign adversaries that seek to destroy this way of life, this classical liberal value system. And, and, and then we see our own structures using the same means ostensible, hopefully to different ends, but in some ways similar ends, right? To basically get a population to believe something or behave a certain way and so forth. So, you know, it, it's very hard to say, well, we, it's, it's okay in this instance or not okay in that instance. And how do you actually solve that question? I, I don't actually know. You can kind of imagine a world where there's, you know, just these sort of battles of propaganda. And, the, and here's, the, here's the, the kicker. The kicker is that some portion of us as a society are deeply susceptible to what these large structures, what I call the megaphone, yeah. you know, that manufacture perceived consensus in society, actually tell them and you can turn on a dime. And I don't, I, I, these are, you know, highly educated people in many cases and well-intentioned. Yeah, and you're absolutely right that, you know, this is an operation that happens within our own nation. Matt Taibbi testified in Congress at a committee called the Weaponization of the Government Against the People, right? That's basically what you could call the committee. Um, and I saw it firsthand. The memo by the National School Boards Association telling the Biden administration that they needed to act against these acts of domestic terrorism happening at school board meetings. And then days later, it was here in this room that I saw the Attorney General of the United States of America declare that he was gonna sick the FBI on parents like me. Like, just imagine like what was going on in my head. I have literally gone to Guantanamo Bay to chase terrorists. I have chase terrorists around the world. Here in Northern Virginia, we have parents, and then by day, they work for the U.S. intelligence agencies, maybe the U.S. military, maybe law enforcement. Just imagine people of good conscience now having the uh, federal government making us the enemy. And so that's why I, I went, I got in my car, and I went to the local Walmart, and I got these letters, and I put them on these scrubs that I bought. And um, it, 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 my, my shirt declared, I am a mom, not a domestic terrorist. And in my kitchen, I just posted a video, unapologetic, you know, about this phenomena because the government turned on us so quickly and so fast. And it was only, you know, us 
refusing that narrative and that propaganda and that character assassination unapologetically, that we have now been able to expose them, defeat that effort, and stand up to them so that we are now defining the election issue of the presidential race in 2024. We have made education and parent rights a number one issue. And, um, and these guys were just such fools in trying to take us on because if anybody's been a parent, they know that your kid can just put a knife in your heart by just saying something like, oh, mom, you're such a loser. You know, and you're just like, oh my gosh, how did I go from being mom to loser? And so calling us domestic terrorists and white supremacists and QAnon moms and all of this, like it's nothing compared to the, like the gentle barb that a child puts in your heart. The debate, you know, on the propaganda on everything from issues of health and vaccines and masks, you know, to education and, um, and uh economic policy, like it, it will be in every sphere. And, and, and the greatest duty we have as citizens of not only this country, but this world is to think through what we're being told, you know, and, and keep doing the, uh, I call it being a Nancy Drew, you know, on information and just figuring out where is it coming from? What's the source? What's the footnote? What's this? Who's that? What's who funded what? Uh, learn your 990 IRS statement in order to investigate who funds a nonprofit that puts out a campaign that's going to convince you of this or that. And, and that's our duty because, you know, the soft power is the easiest way to dismantle a nation and to capture the hearts and minds, just like you said, of people. And it can happen from within. It can happen from external forces. And, um, and, and we just have a duty to not be captive to it if, as best we can. I still can't help but wonder, you know, how do we deal with this idea of disinformation, right? Because we, we, don't, we don't want someone here in this country deciding for us what's disinformation and what isn't. Yet at the same time, we have, you know, massive disinformation campaigns being waged upon us right. by these foreign actors. And domestic actors. Right. Yeah. What I'm trying to say is that, that these efforts are sustained. You know, you can have the CCP putting billions of dollars, right, towards, you know, pushing disinformation messaging or some, some massive amounts of money. And, you know, you, how, do you, how do you deal with that? Do you just let it happen? No, you have to have some kind of way to deal with that, right? But then how, would, how can we make sure that that same system isn't used against the American population? And right. because as we've learned, it's precisely those kinds of systems that have been you know, created for, for foreign work or yeah. being used on Americans, right? What I would ideally like in any kind of situation is that you have a war of ideas that ends up being an actual war of ideas that doesn't actually target human beings as... Uh, character assassination campaigns do, but that's unfortunately a tactic of it because in the war of ideas, if you can discredit human beings, you think you've won, you know, in that battle. Well, Azra Namani, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Thank you so much, Jan. I'm so honored to be here and I wish moral courage for everyone. Thank you all for joining Azra Namani and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. <music>